Hey, we are very glad to have had Emmy join us this episode to talk about her upcoming Kickstarter, the Game Master Option Guide. Towards the end, there's kind of an awkward cut as we had to end things kind of abruptly, but uh, we are so glad to have her here for almost an hour of chatter and conversation and sneak previews. Destroying the entire universe. Welcome to Radio Free Deimos, an Ixun Draconis fan podcast broadcasting from a post-Deimos orbit on Object 17, Voltaire Station. This episode is sponsored by Soul's newest megacorp, Products You Can't Have. Want a don't-point-that-gun-on-my-planet-class weapon? Tough. Look for products you can't have in your dreams. Mm. This is episode 67, coming soon to Kickstarter, and we have a guest who made the long, two-week journey to Voltaire Station. So, I'm Corbeau. And with me this week are my co-hosts, Ashtar, Wines, and YT, Hello. and Iksun Draconis author, Emmy. Hey. So as it happens, we have sealed the airlock, and it's a fairly small space station. You're not going to be able to escape, so we have a couple of demands for you. I brought my list. I'm going to start with uh, LARP rules. <laughs> um, so you may be jesting, but uh, it is a thing. Oh, God, I was kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it has long been a thought. Uh, I haven't written up any, any mechanics for them. It was just sort of always there in the background as, you know, where do, where do furs meet? Cons. <laughs> but what, what should I make? LARP rules. It hasn't come about, but, you know, who knows what the future holds. Dream the impossible dream. Mm-hmm. There was always a little outline of like, okay, these are the things I need to think of. A, physical activities that can take place inside a suit. B, hand gestures that can be seen from the outside of a suit. You know? <laughs> C, where Oh my gosh. You? <laughs> I never thought of the LARP mechanics involved in fursuiting. That oh is yeah, that's, a, that's new. Yeah, yeah no, that's, never considered that's the that. fun part about it. I mean, I like dealing with mechanics. And I'm like, okay, I got people who can barely see. They probably have <laughs> handlers. They have barely workable fingers. Yeah, what can, am I going to do here? We're not going to do a coin flip. They can only throw paper. Right, right. So, um, hoof or hoof? (laughs) Yeah, there were a couple ideas. It's one of the many little systems that have sat in the background until things clear up a little. Uh, Most cons also have rules against various things that look potentially somewhat like firearms, such as Nerf guns or or finger guns. (laughs) Another demand extensive conflict resolution system for dance offs and the research skill. I don't know if I can do that one. That one's, that one's touchier. Now, the upside is in the LARP, if you go to any given con, they already have extensively researched dance-off rules. Oh, true, true. Good point. Uh, somewhere within the 50 pages of charts that we're demanding, we're going to need an additional grappling addendum. Another one? <laughs> grappling, yes. Very important. We, yeah. need, we need the extended grappling rules. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to put in the first one. <laughs> 15 more pages of grappling rules. <laughs> uh, VR chat resource pack. Yeah, that one's going to take some money. Yeah, well. That's going to need a a Kickstarter on its own. I started making avatars for it, actually. Um, Cool. My 3D stuff is all sculpting, and it's too many prims. You know, it's not symmetrical. It's ugly and doesn't uh, makes better minis than it does, you know, workable game avatars. Hmm. Emmy, what happened to all these, like, dollars of indie game funding you're supposed to be rolling in? (laughs) You read them. (laughs) (laughs) You You have read them completely. They have been read out. 
Uh, so it's been um, a whole episode since you were last here with us. How are things going? All right. As all right as things are in this year of our Lord 2020. <laughs> We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So this week, we'll be talking about the upcoming Kickstarter for the Game Master resource pack. What would you call that? Uh, it's called Mastered, and I don't know that I'm necessarily keeping that title just yet. It's had a working title of Mastered for a while. Okay, working. Uh, and it may it may stick that way. I'm not I'm not totally sold unless I come up with something snazzy at the last minute. Sort of implies like foxes on leashes to me. Is that all right? Um, it's all right if it does to you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if I resent that or not. <laughs> yes, but do you resemble it? <laughs> Shush. Um, so in the last episode, we had some sneak previews of stuff from the world of TTI, which I think we included a flare mode for uh, transcendent implants, some transcendently, transcendently unique artifacts, and magical... I like transcendently. Can we keep transcendently? Trans, I cannot transcendently. Is that between sense? Transcendently. I can't say these words. They're hard words. <laughs> it's, that's why you abbreviate TTI. It's fair. I believe you have all the power here. If you like transcendently, it will be transcendently. <laughs> get voted out by the six people who are reading it at a given point. <laughs> so beyond those things, which we can touch on if, if you'd enjoy, but uh, what part of the book did you have the most fun writing? Oh, gosh. Um, it's tough because this is full of a lot of stuff that's just kind of fun. Uh, since this was sort of the over and above book, I would use uh, the Uber book, but we're past 2010. So I don't know that that really applies anymore. <laughs> um, this includes a lot of the stuff that is just kind of out there and doesn't doesn't really have a place in the main book. So all of it's kind of fun to talk about. We got several core races in there that were fun to write out. I actually, <laughs> you were asking about earlier the history stuff that we'll get into later. Um, it's interesting, but it's actually tough to write. So I couldn't say that was my favorite part. It's a lot I of like, words. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. There are stories in front of every chapter again, because that's the thing I like doing. So I get to get a bunch of new stories, hopefully with new artwork to go with it. I mean, it was all pretty fun. I think some of the monster descriptions are pretty entertaining to do. I've seen some fun stuff out of the Pulse world in particular from there. Yeah, there's a bunch of things. There's a whole lot of ships. Uh, honestly, more than there really needs to be, but those are fun too. And they might find their ways into other other pieces of canon, you know, if there's ever a fleet game or something like that. So is this book a little more or less canon than some of the previous books? It sounds like it's more optional. No, so everything's, I mean, it's totally optional. It's its kind of like the DMG is optional, right? You Blasphemy. can play without it. <laughs> and well, that same reaction is going to be the same when it comes to this, because if you don't use this, you lose out on a whole lot of content. Hmm. But you can play the game without it. People have been doing it for years now. But its it's all canon. It's just not all taking place at the time frame that the core rulebook is put out. So there's a lot of stuff in here that's like coming technology. And it's like, if you plan on progressing your campaign down a certain path, expect to see the following things appearing. And then these things will pop up. There's a couple monsters in there that haven't arrived according to the current canon yet, but they're, they're in there. So that if you choose to progress down certain pathways, they're around. Same with pieces of technology. Yeah, it, it's mostly stuff like that. So I wouldn't say it's not canon. I'd just say it's not here. 
Well, stuff like yeah, monsters and ships and races, even if you don't use them, it, for me, I find it useful as a way to understand the game through kind of mechanical stuff as opposed to text descriptions. Right. Because yeah. I'm, I'm a war gamer. I like that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's fun to see them. And there, there's some fun ones in here that are definitely like, oh, I see why this is not a thing that is floating around all the time. We get into, we're all spoilery here, right? Yeah. I think we declared that at one point. Yeah. We get into some of Ra's agents. So the, the secondary uh, MCM that was talked about in Sound and Silence that isn't currently active in Seoul. That was a little bit um, too much alphabet soup there. I mean, can you clarify? Uh, so in Sound and Silence, there's the section toward the back that talks about just various discoveries that, that Tom Hendall made. Oh. And among them was classifying Hydra as this Metakeel manifestation, um, which is kind of this, this being that exists in all realities at all times, as long as, as long as it's been introduced to them. So it doesn't necessarily find them all at once, but once it's in them, it is a singular entity at all times in every reality that it's in which gives it kind of a godlike quality because it's not confused. Anything else is confused in this reality that has totally different rules and, and you know, goes, goes nuts or can't function or you know, we don't work if we don't have air to breathe. Our bodies are only built for certain ways. These MCMs are built for everything. They are omnipresent. So um, Ra is kind of another Ra's the second one. family yeah. of these organisms. Yeah, Ra is the one whose influence resulted in the monolith. So the monolith is not a Hydra object. Some of the carvings that were on it, some of the indications that were on it, led to Hydra's discovery of Earth because they were glyphs that allowed you to speak into other realities where these MCMs were present. So they baited in that one, but Hydra wasn't the one that located the monolith there. The, uh, the FOA did that, and they are, they are kind of organic agents of Ra, hmm. who is active in our universe, but not near us, very far off yonder. And there are some stats for Ra's agents, and they are big and scary. I was debating not putting them in there because the, the temptation is always, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens when we get there, right? But the temptation is always, oh, now I've got a really big thing. I'll, I'll bring it out here. But um, they're, they're story creatures more than they are. Killables. I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, so they are killable, but you really need a fleet to do it. Right. They're, they would be like the final campaign boss that you would mass against these big things, because the whole idea behind a Medicaid manifestation is that it's trying to make everything itself. It's bringing all of, of kind of existence into its own being. Well, like Marsco. Go, yeah, you know, very close. But they go about it in different ways. Right. So the way Hydra does it is that it eliminates everything and learns every little aspect of things. Um, and it's the slow building process because it doesn't really get a lot of momentum and kill. It can start doing that in bulk, but eventually it understands every physical aspect of an environment so it can just cascade across it. Once it understands space, time, concept, thought, matter, antimatter, dark matter, once it has consumed everything there is and figured it all out, it can just reach. It, it knows it all. So it's, it's like this slow build to the top and then it cascades violently. Ra operates from a different perspective where it just begins at a high, high level of overall destruction and reduces everything to a single point. So its agents are planet destroyers, essentially. Like they go around devastating galaxies to bring them down into singularity, which is then consumed. So a major aspect of this book sounds like it's going to be kind of the long-awaited antagonist book, Monster Manual. Are there any other unclassified surprises down that road for us? Well, it's that. It's spaceships. It's active armor and living armor, which were in edition one and people wanted to to see back again. So those are back. It's the new species, uh, which are the old species, but now have rules. 
And there's some neat new items and stuff too, a couple new abilities and a lot of chapters about kind of clarifying play because it is supposed to be the guide sort of help book, right? So there are a few situations where it's like, when, when I designed this system, I designed it with the following thoughts in mind. Here's how I would recommend proceeding with a combat or here's how I would recommend proceeding with a heist um, or how to, how to deal with ubiquitous technology. There's a whole chapter on how to deal with video cameras being at every square inch of everything. When this first started coming about, I, I figured this was right about the time that remote gaming was really getting started. Things like Roll20 were starting to come around, but a lot of games, especially in the past, were primarily tabletops. But as we've moved towards 2020, and especially within this last year, the only way that you're playing is online, be it one of the online tool sets or just homebrew or whatever. Uh, has that really changed any of your approaches to the game or anything within this book specifically? You know, it was always tested online to begin with. So it hasn't changed anything in this book, per se. There are better and better systems coming out. Roll just launched its beta. I'm on the kind of starting game list for Roll, but I haven't been able to sit down and actually build character sheets for it yet. You know, they looked at Roll20 and said, this is pretty clunky about some stuff. Let's try to do this better. Uh, and as Accurate. far as I know, they've done a good job with it, um, but I haven't gotten to play with it yet. But yeah, there's there's a bunch of different systems that are that are trying to to make that more workable. I don't know that uh, that there was anything that I could have put in in this book or any other book that would have served better than the efforts of just uh, software developers looking to streamline their processes because they're all they're all getting better at it. There are new programs out there that allow you to generate dungeons on the fly. And, you know, move 3D tokens and all kinds of different stuff. Did they affect your game design process? Just the difference between playing online that you're obviously kind of focused a little bit more on versus the older tabletop? Inevitably, but it's, it's tough to really quantify it because I have played HSD all of twice in person. <laughs> when I first built it, I was building it with an online community. And even then, you know, this is the, the, long, the long story of, of independent game design. Until you've actually produced a product, nobody wants to listen to you because everybody's got the world's greatest game sitting in their back pocket, right? So when you go up and tell a group, hey, I'm making a tabletop RPG, they go, yeah, I bet you are. And when you say, hey, you want to test this out, they, you know, you don't get a lot of interest. So first edition popped out with a grand total of, you know, six hours of testing. And that was just sort of the reality of first edition. You couldn't, you know, it's a big book. It's 220 odd pages and stuff. There's no group out there that's like, who, who are you? Yeah, um, you, you could yeah, hurt someone sure. with that book. Pretty much. Uh, it asks a lot of them. They have to give up their comfort blanket for a little while. They have to spend their time playing this game they'd never heard of for this person who's never produced anything. It just didn't get a lot of testing, but it was all originally online. Um, second edition got a lot more because at that point the game had a following. But still, the only way to get enough testing across a wide enough gap was to, to call on online resources. So inevitably, that's where it all came from. <laughs> and I had moved. I didn't have local people. So it just, it just kind of worked out that the vast majority of all playtesting in this game has been online. Now, it worked fine the times that I played it in person, too. Uh, it just hasn't happened as often. I don't have a local group to play with. I've moved a couple times since the game has, has been developed, so it's all starting over again. A bit amusing to know that we are in the extreme minority then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know other groups have played, uh, have played in person, um, and that's great. And I'd certainly like to. You know, it's, it's tough to beat that experience. I just haven't had the, uh, the luxury of it, both for people involved and for, you know, location and stuff. 
I'm obviously a big fan of of the physical play that the game has miniatures. I think that's 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 something that I've always wanted to do as a developer because I'm a war gamer and I have always loved miniatures and wanted that to be a thing that my game had. But I I know the majority of players are playing in virtual even prior to COVID. Um, mm. And it's mostly because yeah. this community that goes for this kind of game, you know, they're not necessarily the people who were down the street. You play D and D with people who are down the street. You play furry space ninjas with the people you met at con. <laughs> or or uh, if you happen to find that person in high school that kind of jived with you, you know, maybe you can assemble the right group for it. But it's a different sort of pool than yeah. than just folks you pick up at the game store, unless you happen to put it on a table and then stand off in the corner and watch to see who gathers, which I have done at a con before. <laughs> So back to the kind of the book content to to promote the book content. (laughs) Are there any uh, major kind of character defining options we should be looking at? Because those new races, new things to add to your character sheet are always kind of a hot seller. It's a bunch of different stuff. So there there are the new species options. Kogsune are coming back. The Exodus are coming back. Um, Right. Brain bugs are in there. And they've both gotten dramatically kind of different rules than they originally had. So they, I mean, they do a lot of the same things. The flavor is the same, but the way that they function is different so that you have a different play style when you're using them. The the brain bug option has this kind of fun randomness to it where you're mutating as you, as you get additional material. The, the Kogsune one, you kind of build yourself to do one thing that's really cool and that's your toolkit. And you can expand on your toolkit as you go. So it's different from playing a vector, which was a thing. I didn't want it to just be a reskinned vector, right? Yeah. Uh, so they have their own feelings to them. And they allow you to do some really fun stuff. Um, the Kagsune lore has advanced. They now have a new body. Ooh. So they've been redesigned. Um, they have a new is, corporation. <laughs> they do. When they, when they did that, they had to change themselves. And they, they kind of discovered that the best place to hide was in plain sight. So their, their new body is kind of mascot-y looking. It's floaty. It looks cybery. It's It's like, wow, that's really noticeable. Ergo, it's probably a novelty. And they mm. just kind of, you know exist as a as a as a mascot for the business but it lets them get around it also has new abilities their physics has advanced and in the the parts of the lore that go beyond the current era they play a pretty prominent role but for clarification they actually became cuter they did oh i think so that's important in a weird way they've got floaty limbs now which is fun stuff. A lot of their abilities are not based so much on being able. It's, it's as before. They don't really do much direct damage. They can now, but not a lot. Uh, it's more that they have just certain aspects of themselves that are neat to play with as tools. Hmm. So they these these floating arms that they control with these advanced telekinetic you know manipulators are are damn near impervious to harm, and you can use them to like shove into doors to keep them from closing. Or like put it into a gear to stop something. Like it's it's this tool that is supposed to be nearly impervious. And if you upgrade it, it is essentially entirely impervious. So you could shove it into molten lava if you wanted to. So it's just a neat thing to play with. It doesn't do a whole hell of a lot of damage if you punch somebody with it. They're not very strong. But it's a, a neat thing to just kind of toy around with. I've got this, you know, manipulator that I can shove into any environment. So never ask a cartoon to lend me a hand. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, they, they could actually send out. Is there anything I'm going to be able to enhance my llama with? Um, did you mean like your pet llama or your llama character? Because either, I, either or. Okay, fair enough. Um, some of the items that didn't make it around the first time come back, like Lazarus glands. If you remember those, um, the Sentinel program actually gets stats now. 
so that you can do that to your your character if you want to. That was if you uh, combined hard skin and uh, and telephoric flesh, you came oh. up with this new kind of creature called a the, sentinel. The puddle. Yeah, well, it's the puddle and the hard skin. So you, you got this neat sort of combination of both. This is way back. I don't remember this one. I'll have to. That was, go, that was Core Extended. I'll have to go back out. into the books. Yeah. Yeah, it was mentioned, and in Core Extended, it was specifically mentioned that they didn't get statted because it wasn't really intended to be used as a player thing. Um, and that was primarily there because, like, according to lore, this was just as pretty much 100% beneficial to both operations. That's why TTI and ASR got together on it. They were like, wow, actually, if we put these two things together, we get something really effective. So anytime that you sort of dangle something in front of a player that says, this improves all your stats... <laughs> they they kind of go, well, that's where I have to go. I think it's anytime you put something in front of a player and it's like, this is not really supposed to be player played. <laughs> that too. Yeah, Only 1% uses this. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so it's in here now because this is the guidebook. And if the guide says, no, you can't use stuff in the guidebook, then that's an easy argument to, to end as opposed to it being in the rule book where somebody's like, but it's here in the rule book. <laughs> But I wanted to have it so that people could do it if they wanted to. They're a piece of the lore that's fun. There's some new ones um, that are in there. Compams are kind of cool. They're like elemental pets. They're custom pets made by TTI that en encompass um, – they're made for like officers. It's kind of a sign of rank. Uh, having this thing that follows you around. It's this very pretty animal that also has neat self-defense abilities that can protect you. It shoots lightning and stuff like that. Hmm, cool. um, so, you know, if you need a Pokemon, it's there. But they're nifty and another piece of, of lore to go with it. The old 0801 Maglance has rules now. Um, there's a whole section for premium assets, which are things that are supposed to be single use or limited use. The big personal railgun that was in the first book is now in there. So if you happen to find one, you get one good shot. That was what the character was wielding on the front cover, right? Uh, of the first book? No. There's a character in the book that has a picture of one. So Nadia yeah. is carrying one at one point. Ah. Yeah. The the both books have had Faye Rain on the cover and she's got like um uh I think like rotary guns on her on her hands or something. Okay. They might have been a flamethrower at one point, which is a piece of her lore that might come out in the novels if they continue. The Maglance was this hugely powerful annihilator weapon in the in the first game that didn't come back in the second one because it was just kind of too over the top. And it's in here now as a premium asset where the rules say you, you find this, it's it's so rare to to fuel it properly that you get, you know, a shot. <laughs> so hold it in the back and make it count. Was that the uh, tar-mounted one with the ablative weaponry? Basically yeah. you shoot it, it has a set amount of damage, and you just start stripping away armor until you're out of damage? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Okay, now I yeah. remember that. That I remember thing. that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, any more exciting new kind of category of tech toy that we should be looking for? The ships, which get all their their own rules and stuff. Um, oh. So that that brings in anti ship weaponry, which is a whole category above standard weaponry in terms of damage. So if you're if you're looking to hunt big game, getting vehicles will be a thing now because they just they have much higher endure capabilities and having anti-ship weapons is the better way to handle them are you introducing mega damage kind of um <laughs> yeah it's it's a similar concept in that rather than padding numbers right i don't want things rocking around with 3,000 hit points it just becomes dull yeah yeah um but you have armor that that equates to a certain amount of additional endure and anti-ship weaponry just ignores that armor 
Yeah, honestly, the rule with anti-ship weaponry is just don't be hit. If you're not yeah. a ship, just don't. Just don't. It's <laughs> it's pretty brutal. And there's fun things that, that use that now. There, there are some enemies that have it. You know, the bigger ones do that too. In terms of overall tech, it's just that in the new uh, transcendent implants. Has Pulse managed to build a game around anti-ship weaponry? <laughs> Probably. So uh, every every uh, every category of ship has has entries for every corp in it. So there are there are a lot of ones in here for Pulse that are just kind of like playcraft, and they do have guns. <laughs> so there's nothing really stopping you from doing that. Dodge the railgun. Oh, I love missile that skipping. And with, with Pulse, tracer rounds are not optional. <laughs> no, built in. They do have a missile boat. It's pretty neat. It shoots quite a few of them. So, so when you're saying ship, this is spaceship, airship, ground ship, and ship ship? Or? Uh, spaceship primarily. That's what gets the whole section. The vehicle section does include a couple other things. Like there were a couple tanks in the vehicle section. Um, and I believe there's a battleship and a submarine in there too. It's sort of like you don't really need a lot of these in a future that has anti-gravity. Yeah, so yeah. the the battleship specifically is an anti-orbital craft, and it's because they can put a really honking big gun on it, and it can go offshore and fire it, and the shockwave would normally shatter a few city blocks. So it's got this really good anti-ship weapon specifically for deterring city invasions if somebody's coming down from orbit. But that's kind of the only reason to have a big, you know, waterborne battlecraft anymore. And the submarine is is there because it's difficult to detect. It's a spyglass, uh, a spyglass craft, and and you know allows them to spy in an area that's already kind of hard to detect in. I was going to ask if there was any new material for uh, spyglass and IRPF particularly because they were they were one of the harder ones for us to flesh out in our previous episodes. Spyglass definitely gets an important section in the future history. The future history? Is that, is that a thing, thing I can say? Yeah. Well, I, I've declared it to be. Wait, 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 wait. Um, now, the entire game is future history. So this is future, future history. Future, future history. Yeah, they they have a, a big, uh, oh, so that's what you're doing, thing <laughs> that takes place, which I'm not going to tease too hard on it because that's sort of like story stuff to, to learn about. But they come into a little bit more focus, I think. Um, and it's not even a huge section. It's just kind of like, a, oh, uh, all right. Kind of more what is their role yeah. in the universe clarified. Mm-hmm. IRPF, I mean, I feel like every player's story is IRPF. It's the most popular corp. Really? Yeah. You, you would think it'd be TTI. I, I mean, so in terms of fan I, I base, think I, think, TTI. <laughs> I think TTI has it in terms of fan base. Because if I'm putting out toggles and stuff like that, that's usually the things that they want the most. In terms of players surveyed, IRPF gets used the most often. Huh. And that's for like playing in. And it's just because everybody wants to be the Grizzled Warrior, right? So really um, character type that helps. Right. You yeah. know, they they kind of are what they what they look like. They're this sort of um, pseudo uh, official. I mean, official in that in that setting, but they're really just a mercenary group. And and uh, that's that's essentially what they do. The thing that's sort of interesting about them that gets talked about, but they haven't really had their own story other than than Rio's story, which didn't really follow this aspect. It's just that they they have their fingers in everything. So there's a whole lot of them, the left hand not really knowing what the right hand's doing at any given point, which which leads to this sort of fun idea of you could have entire, you know, campaigns of infighting just within this corp. More so than you could with I think any of the ones except for perhaps Spyglass. 
they are they are heavily kind of you know uh, gang mentality oriented, and they all sort of report to the big boss up top. But once you get into different people's jurisdictions, they're like, you know, these are our rules. You need to back off. So one thing that's kind of been a challenge for for us as storytellers, and I think maybe for the community as a whole, is um, building your own corporations. Um, corporations that aren't like the big seven. Uh, do you open any of that up in the book? Sort of. Um, so it's not phrased like it. It's it's part of the uh, beginning part of the book. I'm scrolling through my table of contents right now. The arc point system. So if you look at any of the published contracts, you'll notice that there's a, a score in there saying that this contract is worth X amount of arc points. And that's never explained anywhere in the core rule book. That was that was tossed into this. That's, uh, very, that's a very white wolf of you. <laughs> isn't it though? This is this is the reality of having to work as a single developer. I have to plan for the future, and the future takes a long time to get here. It is a system for mapping overall growth through a campaign as opposed to individual player growth. And by using it, you can kind of get that feeling of growing a corp because you gain rewards as your arc points increase, like weapon clearances and the ability to purchase ships and the ability to purchase buildings and the ability to to like set up hot zones and stuff like that. So all of the aspects of building a corp that you would kind of expect to get as you became more of a of an organization, arc oh, points help you get the reputation required to do that. Oh, that's very neat. I look forward to that. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a fun one. It's one of many systems in here that you just that you don't need to use. There's a lot of new systems in here that add complexity, but you know the game works without them. It's it's just sort of like if you felt like you needed this, put this in here. This is how it would work. So arc points are are one of those things. You know you don't have to time gate any of these things. You could just say, hey, you're a corp now. You can do this stuff. But if you did want to, if you wanted a long running building uh, campaign where things were time gated, then this is how you'd do it. Huh. On on the general topic of systems you might not actually need in counterbalance, that's always been kind of a a fun one to look at for us. Uh, the narrating combat section has a whole lot of it's it's all about that basically. In fact, the oh. whole section is called well, pacing and balance. Yeah, um, the uh, it has multiple maps and multiple combat examples and what decisions were made uh, in each combat in order to make the combat work properly. So it explains a little bit about the mentality of how the system was built, what things you should kind of include in a balanced combat. Um, it was definitely made with that whole idea in mind. And a strong narration focus. It sounds like. Yeah, it, it talks about, you know, this is how you use the environment you've intended when you're building terrain. You should consider having some of your terrain be flavored to the environment and interactive. You see that happen in, not Eon, but um, one with the owl. I'll remember my own stuff eventually. Point being, there's a big flywheel in there that knocks the shit out of it if you push it in there. And stuff like that adds gravitas to the environment. It's not just a stage to stand on. The environment matters. So I, I kind of promote, you know, pick, pick one object in here that does a thing. You know, it doesn't need to be critical. Maybe they'll ignore it, but have them be able to use the place. You mentioned a little bit that maybe this book dips into historical settings and kind of more periods of the game. And that is a section of the lore that I am really interested in. Can you expand on that? Hopefully it doesn't disappoint. Yeah. So it gets into the timeframes, 100 AE, 300 AE, 500, 700, and a little bit beyond, which is a section called the branching future. And it just kind of goes over what elements would be present or missing at any of these stages. So if you wanted to play these parts, these are the themes that are overarching. You know, here's what's going on at this time. And if you want to play here, here are the things that are absent. 
you know, these technologies aren't here yet. And here are the things that are present. You know, maybe these these corpses are still around or this is a thing that's going on, stuff like that. And any special rules that take place at the time uh, are also listed in there. And then the branching future gets into that stuff that I was talking about where, like, these are technologies that are coming. And if you want to include them uh, or if you see a, a part of this plot that you want to proceed down, expect the following things to occur and, and go accordingly. One of the big ones with this... I mean, there's a lot of them, but one of the big ones with this are the uh, the pale men have an ongoing plot that is current to the timeline of the story. We've seen a couple that have happened in in the adventure contracts. Eon had a, a beginning, and there's a sequel to that one. Yeah, a big musical number. Um, yeah, that'll be that'll be happening at at some point. And they have two additional branches of their species, the the pale worm and the centaur, that are not currently active. But if you proceed down their plot which is basically if you if you continue the second half of that contract or you use the elements from the second half of that contract, those two elements of their species will become unlocked. And it moves them down their, their kind of line of, of the ongoing story. If you're like, no, nah, I don't really like that, that species very much and I don't really want to play with that, you just, you just don't do it. And that doesn't happen. Are they playable? The pale men are. Yeah, yeah, they are included in the section for new species. You can also play as the other new one, uh, the centaur, which is a variation of them that's got kind of a a horse-like lower body for speed. So they sacrifice some of their agility for just additional strength and speed. Do you want to satisfy a bet for us, uh, whether uh you've read the Gaia novels? I told you that last time we talked. I know, but I don't think I used that, that clip. <laughs> no, fair enough. Yeah. No, I did. Um, I'm a big fan of them. They, they are tons of fun. Um, it's this great kind of combination of sci-fantasy uh, that is a, a, a wonderful just sort of environment. And they're quirky. You know, I, I like weird. Uh, and they are, they are delightfully so. But yeah, there's the, those two are options. I don't know that I'm going to include the silkies or the pale worms in there because both of them are just um, the silkies are kind of pigeonholed. They're aquatic, so you're you're stuck there, right? Yeah. They barely move on land, yeah. and the the pale worms are big, like this is a, a dragon-like creature. Uh, does that mean that we're going to be able to leave Seoul soon? Um, depending on how far down you go, yeah. So the the branching future timeline takes you quite a bit out depending on who you're following. Uh, And it does talk about the potential of leaving. There was originally a plan for another game, just another setting book using the same rules, but it's like HSD future where you would be talking about 400 years down and the the, the playable species would actually be all playable species from from around the universe. It would have its own kind of setting book. Um, I don't know honestly how likely that is of occurring just because life is life but it was a planned thing well i think part of the unique ability of the setting is that it is more intimate it's it's near earth it doesn't go total star trek yeah that was what was when i originally built it that was something that i wanted to do it was a a kind of you know uh, i threw the finger at the idea of of lucas's this planet has a single identity and that's all it does thing yeah i do like the, the the Star Trek space encounter, it's it's a fun thing, and it's harder to make it believable in a solar system environment. Even though the solar system is enormous, we we kind of had this expectation of being able to quote see most of it. So like a ship showing up out of nowhere is a little unusual when everybody's moving at at kind of standard speeds. You kind of saw that thing coming three days ago. Okay. Now that the lumen drive is around, we have the idea of being able to pop out of nowhere. 
which is nice. And then in the emergent technology section, uh, Marsco develops a hyperspace gate. So that is the other piece of kind of interstellar travel that is that is being popped out. And it, it scares the crap out of TTI because they think they're diving into a, a near-cure realm to do it. So there's there's neat kind of interactions that take place soon. That one will actually probably be in a contract. So that's like pretty near future stuff. I mentioned the shambles a while back in the, one of the things for... Um, for Insight, the magazine. Yeah, we uh, talked Lonnie about it for like, about that. Yeah. We talked about it for like 30 minutes. I trash talk yeah. Lania. <laughs> it's fair. But Marsco is building one in there because it's not a place that's being looked at. Interesting. Well, Marsco has uh, been kind of slumbering for a while. That's been teased that they're, they haven't really been relevant for a few hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's talked about too. That's part of the branching future thing. Hmm. Actually involves Spyglass a bit. So we get into a couple of those those questions of what these entities have been up to and, and where things are going. And it kind of gives players the opportunity or, or game runners the opportunity of, oh, I, I really like this concept. Let's push down this timeline and I will narrate it as I, I feel it would go down. As opposed to me just kind of writing stories of, okay, now this has happened and you're all stuck with it. I kind of like the idea of these are these are six different directions the future can go. Whichever one is appealing to you is the one that it goes on. Cool. Raw and Hydra information plus the idea of space gates and uh, TTI uh, basically saying no, you're you're going into uncharted territory. This is dangerous. It, uh, it's giving me vibes of what happens if we mixed Mages the Ascension with Mass Effect and threw it into furry space ninjas. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good example of how there's nothing new under the sun. Um, I've never played Mage. Um, I'm aware of it, but I uh, I don't know much of its details, and I've never played Mass Effect. Imagine so, a game. Imagine a game where half the game is designing the game system of the game you're playing. That's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I know you make your own spells in it. And there's a, a. I mean, that's original Mage. I don't oh. know how the new Mage goes. <laughs> the, the the original Mage is the one that I'm thinking of because it's a lot more fun. Uh, where it's 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 so pushing down the idea of reality is the way the populace believes reality is. Uh, and there's an element of that in HSD, it seems. Yeah, where... I, I mean, I, I certainly think there's a lot of, of uh, literature that, that uses this idea. There was a um, the beating up reality until it serves you thing. If I was going to pull that from anywhere literature-wise that I can recall, uh, it was used in the Death Gate cycle, if any of you read that. It's a fun little set of books. But, but the magic in that was essentially using runes to rewrite reality. Uh, until it it served you, and the more complex the rewrite, the more reality didn't like it. <laughs> and it was it was it's a nifty one. It's a uh, a set of several books. If you're looking for kind of older sci-fi, that's uh, or I guess fantasy, but it's got an element of both in it. But yeah, it's just it's a concept that's used fairly commonly with the with the the gateway situation. Marsco believes that they created an alternate reality wherein distances are basically closer to each other. You know, the same kind of concept of any sort of space fold, manifold sort of thing. Um, and it's possible that they did, but TTI is worried because if they did create a essentially near keel reality of their own, it's an extremely basic one, which means that it's open fodder for a metacule manifestation to go into. It doesn't have to know much. It doesn't have a whole universe to consume. It's got like four concepts, time, speed, and distance. To, to, and branding. To, or, and branding, yeah. Um, or alternatively, they actually tapped into the one that the monolith already uses, which is bad news because there's something on the other side of that. Yeah, the monolith is supposed to use a, a gate. That's that's mm-hmm. that's a known yeah. thing. 
so that's what they're worried about is that the one that Marsco quote made, maybe they just found, you know, maybe they found the portal that was already there and have tapped into another another entrance for it. And TTI is is vaguely aware of something much more sinister living on the other side of that thing, which is why we have stats for Ross agents now. Talking about crunchy stuff, is there anything the Kickstarter backers should be looking for? Uh, we're going to do the, the item inclusion thing again. So for people that have ideas for premium assets, those single-use assets, and for restricted assets, which are things that are just harder to get by, active armor, living armor, stuff like that, we're going to be doing the, uh, you know, at a certain level, you can kind of donate ideas for that. Hmm. We're probably going to be doing a monster thing. So if you wanted to put a monster in the game, you know, your favorite kind of the fan monster sort of thing, below yeah. a certain level. Giant um, foot tall space hyenas. Uh, um, that's more the entertainment part. But <laughs> the monster section of the book is big, but it's it's weighted kind of heavily toward the back end of the game. And I would like to flesh out the early early game monsters a little more. I've got a squid for you. Oh, there you go. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to be opening up, you know, if people have fun monster ideas, fun drones, things like that. We've got a few things in there, but there's never, never too many monsters. There's going to be large miniature, kind of premium miniatures. So I mentioned the, uh, the pale worm. The pale worm has a miniature, and by miniature, I mean it's freaking big. So if you want to um, kind of have the, the neat collector's mini or something, um, there's that one. There's one for uh, a bioship fighter. Like, they're big ones to, to kind of put on your, your tabletop as a showpiece, like a little statue. Cool. So a couple of the larger creatures have been made for for printing at uh, at big scale, and, and stuff that I come up with after that. But those are the ones that kind of come to mind as fun. There's a, there's a lot of player contribution that's that's going to be tried to be included, and the uh, the kind of premium minis that I don't think will be available through any other way because uh, Shapeways would just charge too much for them. Yeah, like if they'd be forbiddingly expensive. Did you just post to the Discord chat a picture of Hush waking up? No. <laughs> okay, that was my own. That was my own thought. Okay, never mind. What you what you saw there was a there's there's four new types of whispers, five new types of whispers, oh. um, because the whole species on a whole is waking up. So we're oh, we're no. getting to that whole. Um, this is the true here be dragons story. This this book brings it all out here. Up to now, we've been getting to this point. This is like now you have reached that edge and gone past it. You fool. Oh, the whispers we had were pretty unstoppable <laughs> yeah i mean they were off then we got variants hydra is learning that there is defense and it's getting around them so the one that you saw is called a sender it's a ranged unit huh are any of them player controllable <laughs> <laughs> i debated that so um i uh, For the really dark player <laughs> there is there is one that you can talk to which oh. is which is a a a fun little thing because Hydra is, is is rather communicative as far as the, the MCM goes. Uh, that's how they first interacted with it to begin with, was by by asking essentially for directions through this other reality. And Hydra's like, well, I live here. Come this way, and also I will consume you. But, you know, we'll talk first. There was going to be, I considered putting in uh, player stats for, for Whisper characters to play specifically hunter-killer games. So it's like, you know, one person plays this and everybody else does it. But I was like, this doesn't really need a rule set. You could just do that. If you want to, you know, put, put put the whisper in the scene and give it to the one character who the one player who didn't come to the party this time or something and see what they can do. It was a thought for a board game. I've got a couple little 
subplots rattling around for board games that I thought would be fun. Like one of them was was going to be set in pre-vector times where you played as like a team of infiltrating pale men into one of the earth bunkers. And your goal was to go down and find something and take out as many people as possible or kind of thing. So there's this, that's mostly where those came from. But I think the thing about giving these creatures to players is that it's a little tough because they are very reliant on you playing them according to their story or they start becoming gross. Like the, they, they have the ability to single targets out really well. Um, and they don't necessarily do that because they have certain scripted behaviors. But if you give them to players, they don't anymore. Mm. And, and that becomes a problem. That's also what makes Pale Men particularly dangerous. Their stats aren't anything special. I mean, they shoot very well. They've got better stats than the average character, but they're not as strong as a vector who's actually been up to like Landmark 3, Landmark 4. But they're, as an enemy, they specifically are, are tactical. They single people out, they drag people around, they put them into areas where they can't be helped, and they knife them. So that's the, the whole threat of the pale worm is not that it's a big dragon, it's that it's a pale man with a giant body. So it, it picks up a variety of different guns, picks its targets carefully, and singles people out and you know, drags them off of cliffs. <laughs> that's what makes them dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so there's definitely this, um, I don't want to hand some of these stats to players because they will behave like players as opposed to behaving like monsters. Right. Uh, I, that's a very, very valid concern because if you if you ha- if you do a hunter versus hunter versus hunter kind of thing or uh, vector versus enemy, then it can get very out of hand. But I was also thinking kind of the the, the fun flip side D and D campaign where it's like you are controlling the dungeon. I am going to take it. I as the guide, I'm going to take a party of vectors through it, kill them. Yeah, and you can totally do that, but I didn't think it really needed a rule set. I mean, you could just do it, hand the monsters to the players and be like, okay, and we were doing this. Very fair. Never going into the blight zone again. It was just horrible last time. Those have rules now. Oh. Oh, yeah. That's been a a thing that's needed to come around for a while, and and they're in here. There are several different environments that have rules. Now blight zones are one of them. But we already did an episode on them. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) Look, new content. (laughs) So there was some major new stuff that we touched on a few weeks ago on TTI and TTI products, but you know this might be the first an introduction to our podcast for a lot of people as well. So the two big ones I remember being um, well, the, I love the artifacts, the the unique artifacts. Can we talk about those again? Yeah, those are in premium assets. Um, so the one that that I mentioned that was TTI based was were the Emerald Swords, which were just a, a bunch of fountain pens that were held by the uh, by the trust when they traveled back and forth between different realities. And um, one of the things that's introduced in Sound and Silence is that um, objects are capable of inheriting transcendent properties the same way that that people are. Um, there's no in in the grand scheme of of bizarre space magic, there is no distinction between you know animate or inanimate object or, or organic or whatnot um, it doesn't really matter it's just a matter of, of having the right properties and being in the right places uh, and these pens inherited certain qualities as they traveled through through different realms and after the whole trust disappeared the pens have slowly been reappearing so they found six of them so far and they are available as premium assets which do some pretty cool stuff magical fountain pens really placed my bureaucrat fetish <laughs> I think that was the only TTI one out of that particular. I mean, that and the Sentinels, but they're not. Uh, they're not transcendent. They're just cool. Uh, the flare mechanic we talked a little bit about reinterpretation. It's a. It's an alternate uh, version of the um, 
the the standard uh, transcendent implant use that makes it so that instead of a bit having a point and click power like you do with the uh, with activations of the implants right now, you instead kind of sheathe yourself in in the implant as a, an overall state of condition, and it gives you certain qualities, changes your attacks, changes the way you take damage, changes the way you move, stuff like that. Um, and this was actually something that was always intended to be in the in the core book, but by the time it came to publication, there just wasn't enough time to, to test it. Or room. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to go shoving it in there unused. So it'll go into this one as a use this if you want it or don't kind of thing. But they are they are intended to be on par replacements to the uh, current power state if you want to use them. So if you, one of your players wants to use the point and click power and the other player wants to use the sheathing power, then then that's fine. They're still compatible. Yeah. So is there anything that you particularly regret that ended up on the cutting room floor in this project? I don't know about regret. So there's a couple of reasons things don't make it into the book. Time is one of them. Space is another one. Redundancy is is kind of a thing. Um, a big one is, you know, whether or not I really need to include this. Is this really going to help anything? We kind of run into that with the players running the monsters thing. People have been running monster games in D&D for ages, and it's never needed to have its own book. So I... I that it's mostly that stuff. I started writing a bunch of different things and I'm like, you know, this isn't really needed or it's self-indulgent and it's taking up space. Um, <laughs> but you're an indie author. Self-indulgent is the name the, of the game. The whole book is self-indulgent, <laughs> right? Um, so Masterminds was a chapter that was, I introduced a lot of characters in Sound and Silence and Masterminds was this chapter that was going to be like, okay, so if you want these characters to be like running a team against your team, they get the um, following properties. And, and that was kind of fun, but I'm like, okay, ultimately I'm going to be taking up 20 pages of this book to write about 10 of my own people yeah. in a game that probably runs better having people make their own people. This isn't necessary. Yeah. that's That sounds like online content. Yeah, so that that got hacked out. Um, there was one called Forethought, which was a system that I put together and ultimately decided probably didn't need to exist. The, the Forethought system was this concept of you assign a habit for your character, and that habit helps get you around gotchas. So like your character has a habit of locking doors behind them, or your character has a habit of checking corners before they walk around. So that so that when you you know run into that situation of like okay I turn the corner here ah you're ambushed no I'm not Ooh. my character always checks but I'm like this this is a neat thought but it's going to generate as many arguments as it solves yeah as a game master I think I'm I'm okay with this one not making it into the book yeah so I hacked that one out because I figured it just wasn't going to help and then the last one that was kind of in there was there was going to be one on commerce. But I realized it kind of boiled down to me explaining why prices are the way they are. And I don't really need to justify that. That's the game. You know, if you don't like it, change them. It's your game. But I wrote it that way. So there you go. <laughs> um, it wasn't really necessary to argue why the decisions were made or give people hints on like how to price their own products. There's something like 400 items in the book now. You can probably figure out how to price your product uh, if you decide to put an item in there. So that got pulled out too. Just as a totally pointless aside, I'm imagining the habit actually reads ULAS before clicking OK. But that's yeah. too, <laughs> too implausible. Um, I mean, it's stuff. I mean, I have the list right here because the chapter is still around. It just isn't included. You know, setting toggles to silent while sneaking, you know, in, inspecting their home before dropping their guard when they get home. It's stuff to, to say, you know, this is stuff my character does. Eating the cat. Yeah, feeding the cat. But for everyone you assign, you're inviting the DM to come up with a new one you didn't think of. 
I was like, this isn't going to help. Yeah. I just kind of let people handle it. Yeah. Yeah. That that's, Oh God. Am I allowed to go off on a tangent? <laughs> Probably. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so in the system that I absolutely adore called Hackmaster, this is reminding me a lot. Uh, well, the habits are reminding me a lot of the quirk and flaw system, which is, here is a list of all the little quirks and flaws that your characters have, such as uh, you like nervously work with your weapons, uh, which uh, there's a positive to that. You always know if you're armed or not, and you always know the state of your weapons. The downside is that, as the as it says in the like the dungeon master's guide, uh, you will also put more wear on your weapons and things like that. Or your character has a weak bladder, so therefore they will wander further away from the group. Which, on the positive side, it means they're much better at spotting enemies in the darkness. On the downside, they're also much easier to spot in the darkness. <laughs> so it's like this, uh, like, here is a list of habits that you can have. Here's the way that they're benefit the, uh, beneficial for the player. Here's the way that the guide can screw you over with them. The fake concept that everything has a flip side, which is negative. Yeah, like the, the, the checking around the corner one is what I was thinking of. Like, yes, your character always checks around the corner. They're not, you can, they cannot be ambushed. On the side, around the corner. They also can't sneak up on anyone. I thought you said chicken right. on the corner and I was lost. <laughs> yes, they, they, only, they only eat their chicken while sitting on street corners. Very limiting. So kind of in regards to the meta plot, perhaps, but also to your own story of this game, how much of this book is going to be about providing closure to the setting? Uh, if anything, it opens it up more. So uh, the branching future thing kind of gives you a lot of, of different options to go through, depending on, on how you want to proceed it. I have one in mind that I figured the setting kind of goes to, but I didn't really want to lock people to it. I thought there were enough different places to go that it's more fun to let them run their own game. We are not going to see a resolution to anything in this. We're going to see where everything has led to. You, you will see what, what the problems are. Well, thank you so much, Emmy, for being here tonight. And um, we look forward to uh, throwing money at you very soon. Let's talk to you, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Sirius Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com. That's D-E-I-M-O-S for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. 